This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. AWS is committed to sustainability. It's good for the planet, business, and communities. Learn more about AWS sustainability goals at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, greeting you today from snowy northern New Jersey. Joel McCower is taking some well-deserved vacation in a much warmer place. On this week's edition, blue states are speaking up on the ESG debate and behind Amazon's latest climate tech investment. This week on Greenbiz 350. It's March 3rd, 2023. Welcome to this week's episode of GreenBiz 350. Joining me today as co-host from Oakland, California is GreenBiz Senior Editor, Jesse Klein. Hey, Jesse. Hi, also snowy Oakland, California. We got Ooh. some snow in the mountains this week. That's right, that's right. Yeah, it's been such a weird weather scenario here and I, I don't wanna talk, spend too much time on the weather, but I mean, <laughs> it was like 70 degrees a few days, like maybe last week and now we have snow. And I'm actually very happy about the snow. I love snow. It's so pretty and we need it. And um, I don't know about snow there in Oakland, but just in the high elevations. Yeah. yeah. And we're getting, we're yeah. getting it. We're getting lots of rain and, and yeah, up in Santa Cruz mountains and some of the Grizzly Peak area, we got some we got a light dusting of snow. So it was all over the news, the weather news. Yes. There was quite a kerfuffle about uh, the commute yesterday um, with the snow. Um, so yeah, oh my God, it's like the apocalypse was coming or something. Uh, you are actually traveling. You've got some upcoming travel. Tell me a little bit about. It. I think it's, uh, you're heading to Austin. Yeah, also following Joel's lead, escaping a little bit south. Um, yeah, headed to Austin for South by Southwest. I have never been before, so we're gonna go and follow me and um, our my colleague Leah. We're gonna go and follow the climate track there. There's also a big Future of Food Expo. A um, bunch of like cool climate journalists there. And if we can uh, sneak in some barbecue and a couple uh, music shows as well, I'll be I'll be very satisfied. <laughs> Is that going to be vegan barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, yes, the challenges of traveling somewhere for a climate event. And we do that all the time on our own dime here at Green Biz. Um, but yeah. I wonder, do they have, actually, I'm curious, do you know if they have like the kind of offsetting program that we have? Oh, I don't know. I would, I would doubt it, but I could, I could definitely check the, maybe the climate track, track specifically might, but um, yeah, it's a good, it's definitely a good point. And I will have some vegan barbecue because I'm sure the future of food will have some too. But if I go all the way to Austin and don't at least try a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to uh, your reporting from on site, you and Leah. I'm, it's a great team. I hope you have fun. Uh, don't have too much fun in your Airbnb, but uh, <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that. Oh, and let's stop chit-chatting and, and actually let's chat in more depth about the Week in Review. Mm-hmm. 
So we're going to focus on two stories this week, and I'm going to cue you up because you edited the first one of these two, and I and I I like I really appreciate it because um, I am so frustrated reading all of the doom and gloom and you know anti woke rhetoric out of places like Texas and Florida, which are really trying to put the kibosh on um, financial firms being able to use things like ESG in their investment decisions, which is just a weird weirdly yeah it's just so weird i mean like it's just not a good financial decision it's not it's just not good business and so you actually edited this piece from uh, someone from michigan who whose state is taking a very different um a very different stance it's kevin kevin i think it's bain i would that would guess to say that that's how he pronounces it and he wrote how states can seize the esg high ground so give me a little bit of a backstory here yeah, um, our, our colleague Joel, who's out, has actually written about this a couple of times in his newsletter. But yeah, it's a very, I agree with your sentiment. It's a very weird culture war happening in finance, which is not three words I would really put together. But yeah, there's been a lot of um, kind of red state pushback against ES, pro ESG policies. And Kevin is kind of arguing that this is a opportunity for blue states to really... Um, kind of fill in the gaps and let that and the banks that are being pushed out and even banned in some states like um, I think DeSantis is trying to ban uh, or make trying to make it illegal to sell ESG bonds at all um, so he's sort of saying like this is an opportunity for blue states to sort of grab that sector of the economy for in financial um, services and that it's actually you know, obviously a good financial decision for blue states because it's going to, because they, you know, ESG funds tend to do better than traditionally managed funds. Um, but yeah, it's, again, I agree with your sentiments, it's like very weird. And he's, because it's also um, a net negative for the red states. Um, his argument was that by, one of his arguments was that by banning ESG uh, banks or ba banks that deal in ESG, which is basically all banks, but banning a lot of banks, it's lowering the amount of competition in that state and increasing uh, transaction costs for the, so even for regular banks, because there's less competition, it's bad for their um, constituents because there's, they can like have a bit more of, an, of a monopoly. So his three suggestions for what blue states should do um, to kind of combat this or to take the advantage of the opportunity was to not only encourage ESG um, funds, but to adopt ESG mandates in investment policy. He also wanted to help states design a strategy to leverage ESG finance for public resilience projects. So he talked about kind of creating similar task forces, similar to California's Green Bond Committee. And then also to create an ESG-friendly business climate in your state by adding um, incentives for ESG projects or, or ESG funds and just allowing, you know, the, that economy to flourish and really kind of stealing the pie from, from the red states. Yeah, I, I think one, I, so this is, there were some really great suggestions and you just went, did a great job of summarizing them. I think one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading this piece was just how, um, the insurance sector might be involved. And it's he doesn't really get into it in depth here, but it is a, I mean, if I think about where some of the worst hurricane damage has been in the last, let's just say five, five or so years, 
Texas and Florida are the places. And if you're an insurer and you're not able to have clauses related to climate risk, which is part of, you know, part of what the the governors of these states are going after, that's a problem. Like, I'm just wondering if like insurance companies will also start abandoning certain certain states as well. And I, I, I don't know enough about insurance policy or law or the, the regulations around that and whether they're allowed to exit places. But it is just um, the rhetoric is, is loud. I'm glad that that uh, I think the rhetoric is is on the blue side is is getting um, is getting better. It just it feels like so for so long um, so many people on the blue side of the aisle, if you will, have been on the defensive, and this is a way for states to set themselves up as great economic investments, as great places to have your companies, um, and so forth. It and I think the irony. I think it's just, it's going to get I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I think that certain states are going to are see the opportunity. Um, I, there was another piece I was reading; it's not related to the the finance part of it, but um, there was a there's some a number of states I think, including Utah, that are investing seriously in recycling infrastructure because they know other states nearby have these laws that and they have to you know they have to have the infrastructure, and so they see it as an opportunity. So I think we're going to I think. I think people, business-minded governors will come around, those that aren't just trying to, um, you know, stoke culture wars and, oh, potentially run for president, you know. So anyway, hopefully it'll change. And I, and I think that kind of brings us to our second story, which is what we're going to stick, we're gonna stick this, with the state theme this week here for the Week in Review. But um, our new analyst on the Greenfin side, uh, Nico McCrossin, has written a piece about California's um, proposed legislation on on disclosure. So we have the U- U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which has its proposed rules for disclosure by companies. Um, and there's a lot of different uh, components of that, including potentially scope three emissions disclosures. But they're really only focused on public companies. What's happening in California is in late January, a pair of bills were put forward in the California Senate that would mandate emissions disclosure of corporations and climate risk on on both private and public side if you're over a billion dollars in revenue. So these two laws, um, or I should say proposed laws, would really change the the playing field, um, partly because Hey, I think it's uh, California is like what the fifth largest economy in the world. So there's a pretty good chance that if you're doing that, if you have a company and you want to like sell something, you're going to be selling it in California. So it's kind of pretty much pertains to everyone. Um, I'm just curious about the uh, the you know you're there on the ground, Jesse. Has there been much coverage of this? Has there what's the impression of the or the the reaction to this this idea from the locals? Yeah, I mean, I think the the big thing that I noticed when reading Nico's article was the, and this might be my own bias because it's part of my beat, but it's the the scope three disclosure requirement. Um, that is sort of not guaranteed in the SEC um, ruling right now or like that they're looking at, but this, a couple of the bills would require scope three emissions disclosure, disclosures, which is usually the biggest part of any company's emissions. And it's also really hard to track and disclose and to um, reduce on. But I think it's really important. So I I think I see that as kind of like the biggest departure and would that would really, really change the landscape for businesses. 
yeah, like you said, you know, California knows its power. And I think having um, the same way that, you know, Kevin's article talked about, you know, different states taking advantage of where other states are are falling behind. I think that's a really interesting part of, you know, the U.S. as a as a country is that we have these different states, um, different state governments and different state laws that can lead the way and push different um, states to do different things in when our federal government, you know, can't do as much or hasn't been doing as much to kind of push the conversation forward. So there's a lot of power in the hands of these big state governors and these big state legislators to, you know, direct the conversation in a way that's kind of unique to the United States. Yeah, and I'll just point out that uh, the model for this is California's work on um, standards for cars, right, and for emissions disclosures. And when it it really set up its own um, rules, if you will, for that, it was followed by, I think there's like four, at least a dozen other states in the District of Columbia that actually model the California standards. And there's, you know, if this stuff passes, there's probably a pretty reasonable uh, chance that other states will look at California's map and and maybe adopt some of the same uh, principles as this. The one thing that I struggle with a little bit on these mandatory disclosures is the um, and it's you know on the scope it's really the scope three I think is is what happens to the smallest companies that don't have the wherewithal or the ability to to be disclosing and do they somehow get unfairly penalized because you know they're they're not able to do so they wouldn't necessarily be required you know under the limits of of this particular proposal but you know if you're not disclosing and people don't know what you're doing even if you're doing good things you you could be unfairly penalized so i i know that there's some pushback um for example on the white house uh procurement rules, right? That they're trying to, you know, make sure that companies have uh, science-based targets. And, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, rules and, and so forth that are being put in place that that are difficult and challenging and, and, and a little bit overly complicated, I think. I think a lot of these things need to be simplified. I mean, the opposite is also true, though, that like sometimes the best reporting, like the, the companies that report the best and have the most accurate reporting, they get dinged because it looks like their emissions are higher than everyone else's, but they just have like way better reporting than anyone else. Or So I think, yeah, it's a double-edged sword, which is maybe not the best. Well, the other thing I was going to say just on reporting in general is like, what are these rules based on? What, what are the reporting frameworks based on? And are they up to date enough? Um, I was, again, I was reading this morning and I was just sort of like, we're, we're, we're putting a lot of weight on these things and are, are they up to it? Are they up to the task? Are these reporting frameworks? So lots of um, exciting things. Uh, yes, states, the states are stepping in. I love it. It's it it's it's something that you know really took off during the uh, administration of the previous president, who I will not name on this podcast. Um, but you know, good on you, um, blue states. We're watching, and we'd love to hear more about more innovation. Amazon kicked off Women's History Month this week by investing an undisclosed sum in Genesis, a startup that's turning organic waste into bioplastics. 
The venture is one of the first investments as part of the $50 million Female Founder Initiative, part of the Climate Pledge Fund. Joining me to chat about the news are Luna Yu, CEO of Genesis, and Phoebe Wong, an investment partner and head of the Female Founder Initiative at Amazon. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, ladies. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. So Phoebe, let's start with some background um, on the Climate Pledge Fund and the Female Founders Initiative. What's the aim of the uh, of these efforts? Thanks, Heather. Um, the Female Founder Initiative is a $50 million um, initiative to invest and double down in female founders and uh, female leaders. We know that female founders and the companies um, often receive a fraction of the venture capital funding um, as a staggering only 3% of the total funding that goes into venture capital. Uh, Amazon is deeply committed to promoting gender equity, uh, including closing uh, the gender gap that exists for women in climate tech who are seeking funding for their ideas. So this is why we launched the Female Founder Initiative and committed to invest in uh, the bright stars like Luna um, and others to, um, yeah, to really kind of pushing forward uh, for our um, gender equity um, like initiative. Do you have a diversity lens on it as well? Absolutely. So uh, in addition to female founders, uh, we have other parts of um, Amazon Corp Dev that looking at diverse GPs uh, like Catalytic Capital, etc. Uh, from the Climate Pledge Fund, we also have um, collaborations with Elemental Accelerator uh, and also Green Town Labs. Um, and then uh, we recently also participated in the Elevate um, Partners, uh, Elevate Fund from uh, the Energy Impact Partners. Yeah, great, great, great partners there. <laughs> um, this is one of the, this is characterized as one of the first investments. So maybe there are others. I haven't heard about them yet. But uh, what other sorts of technologies has your team invested in? Um, I'm actually particularly interested in the Female Founder Initiative. Absolutely. So uh, we have announced a female founder initiative pretty recently. Uh, so it's during the COP27, uh, November last year, that we announced this initiative alongside with uh, our the Climate Pledge in Amazon as well as USAID, uh, AID. Um, so we're still at our early stage in the female founder initiative. But at the same time, if you look at our portfolio, we have already um, made sure that uh, we have good female leaders and female co-founders over there. Yeah. And, and and other sorts of technologies, this is a bioplastics, and we're going to get to Luna's uh, breakthrough here in a moment. But um, any other particular technologies that are of interest or um, that you've already made a, a backing in? Absolutely. So uh, we have, um, so in the uh, Amazon Climate Pledge Fund, uh, we have several sectors that we focus on, uh, including building and building efficiency, uh, circular economy, which uh, Luna uh, Genesis uh, is part of that thesis. Uh, we also invest in energy utilization storage and, and production, uh, and also transportation and mobility, which is one of the uh, largest emitter for CO2. Um, yeah, so there are lots of different sectors and technologies that we're looking at. And the list are adding up because um, like the more that we look at the landscape um, and Amazon is a very big company, we want to make sure that the technology that we use, uh, we invest, will have a good deployment home uh, within Amazon. Okay, great. So Luna, give us the backstory on your startup. What are you hoping to achieve? 
Absolutely. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. So thank you again for having us. And uh, what, really what we do here at Genesis is we are a waste to bioplastic technology company. And what we're trying to do is essentially solve the climate crisis stemming from the food waste and plastic pollution with a singular circular solution. And that solution is essentially making PHA bioplastics from organic waste. And really what PHAs are is that they're biodegradable and marine biodegradable and home compostable and non-toxic alternative to traditional plastics. And it's essentially a naturally occurring polymer that's really found in the cells of bacteria and made by fermentation, like you would brew beer, right? And one of the, the really special things about our company is that unlike other bioplastic producers that uses food sources like corn or sugarcane uh, that essentially competes with the human food supply, we use organic waste streams. And that essentially enables the development of a circular economy, a solution at scale. So where are you getting that organic waste from? Great question. So there's actually right now more than 3 trillion pounds of food waste produced on a yearly basis. And most of the food waste, unfortunately, ends up in landfills where they release 7% of global greenhouse gas emissions, right? Now, a portion of it does get diverted into what we call biogas plants, who essentially takes in food waste and converts them into biogas. So our technology can essentially add on to their existing site uh, by adding in additional equipment and help them convert that additional, that existing uh, food waste stream that they get on a, let's say, hundreds and thousands of tons basis on a yearly basis into biodegradable plastics. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you began working on this at university. Um, I'm just kind of curious what the catalyst for that was, you know, why this problem, um, why climate change? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, one of the really cool things about uh, universities is that we get to explore a lot of different things. And we had an opportunity to actually work directly with biogas plants. And the reason why we wanted to work with them was that we felt like that was a great technology that takes a waste material that would otherwise go into landfills and release methane emissions and convert that into a valuable resource, right? But we thought that, you know, there's something that we can do to better their business in terms of actually diverting more food waste into a sustainable solution as opposed to landfills. And the way to do it is essentially to make a product of higher value much more efficiently so that is there's an economic interest for people, waste haulers, to essentially put that waste into biogas plants. So that's really what inspired us. And of course, on the other hand, on the other problem that we're solving is the plastics problem, where there's more than 400 million metric tons of plastics produced every single year that are using fossil fuels, right? And 10% of, 10 of them essentially gets recycled. And the rest of them mostly ends up in landfills. So with our technology, we can essentially make a non-toxic, non-polluting uh, sustainable alternative to it, where if plants and animals ends up taking it up, it will not cause any environmental damage. And also right now, fun fact, humans consume an average of a credit card worth of plastics on a weekly basis. And unfortunately, right now, a lot of them uh, contain chemicals like BPA. So PHAs are a great non-toxic alternative. Yeah, I want to come back a little bit more to the infrastructure approach used in a moment. But I, I, I want to pull in Phoebe here to ask what Amazon hopes to achieve with Genesis. So like, OK, we just heard a bit about their value proposition. So where does where does it fit? for Amazon? 
Yeah, so the specific uh, bioplastics that um, Genesis is producing is PHA and PHBV. So by turning the BV percentage, you can actually, uh, it is very tunable in terms of the characteristics. So it is, you can uh, not only produce like a thin film um, plastics, uh, like for the typical food and uh, grocery packaging, but also like the rigid injection molding applications, uh, like a big like bottles or uh, like containers. So we are, uh, our material innovation team in our worldwide sustainability organization. Uh, Alan Jacobson's team is actually working very closely with Luna's team to identify what are the uh, adoptions, early adop adoptions in our business units to, to use that. So we are very excited to um, identify and uh, work with Luna on uh, the potentials. Now, Luna, where you, if you think about where your systems may be placed and these on, at these uh, existing sites, potentially new sites and so forth, um, we know that across North America, there's a lot of potential investment going on in sort of clean economy, clean industrial um, hubs and so forth. And there's also a lot of focus on what those hubs mean for communities of color and for communities that have been underserved um, by the solutions in the past and also um, unfairly burdened with, with some of the climate problems that we've had. I'm just curious how environmental justice um, plays in your in your business model. How much are you thinking about that? Where where do you hope to address that? That's a great point. I mean, environmental ju justice is definitely often ignored by most, but it's also at the core of what we do at Genesis and what we hope to accomplish and change. So for us, you know, for example, with the plastics uh, that is currently made right now using petroleum sources, it's essentially polluting all of our oceans and rivers, and especially in under underserved communities where a lot of these large plastic production plants are set up, right? And the microplastics have now been also found in even in the placentas of unborn babies. So by creating for us a safe material with the same functional benefits and properties as traditional plastics, so it's a much more easier switchover, we're essentially helping the building of a much more resilient supply chain and also helping to make non-toxic inert uh, plastics that will not pollute, for example, underserved communities. And of course, with sourcing of our food waste, what we do hope to do is essentially set up, you know, one of these small little plastic production hubs in every single community going forward, and ideally being able to then convert most of the food waste that ends up in landfills as of today into useful PHAs for the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, as we mentioned at the beginning, your company is one of the first investments for the the initiative that Amazon undertook last year. What makes the support of this particular initiative different in your in your mind? Right. So for us, it's really quite special here. So for example, already, just like Phoebe mentioned, we've already been able to be enrolled in a series of leadership training from uh, seasoned Amazon executives and really learned the ropes from them. And we've also been able to directly access and explore collaboration opportunities within Amazon's business units. And Amazon being a huge gorilla in sort of the consumer's product space, we can really make, I, I believe, a huge difference here. And uh, for us also, Phoebe and her team have been incredibly talented and super attentive to every single aspect of our needs. And we honestly cannot be more excited to work with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's awesome. I have a particular interest in corporate venture support of startups. I feel like there's a very synergistic relationship that startups and entrepreneurs can have with larger corporations. So I'd like to actually ask from, from both of your perspectives, what's important about this sort of relationship. So 
Luna, what should you look for to other, to, you know, talking to other entrepreneurs, what should you look for in a, in a corporate venture partner? What do you, what should you demand be in that relationship? I think there's a couple of things. Uh, maybe the first one being the alignment and core values, right? So for example, here at Genesis, we've been incredibly lucky to partner up with some of the best companies in the world, including Amazon. And uh, in terms of our customers, also counting several Fortune 500s that don't just talk the talk, but also walk the walk. Right. So I think that core value alignment is definitely front and center. And besides that, the speed and the ability to basically make, make bold bets in terms of replacing existing petroleum plastics with sustainable plastics, knowing that also we've got a long way to go before we can replace everything with PHAs. Right. So I think those two are probably the most important things, uh, sort of that alignment to core value and the ability to move fast and make bold, big, bold bets. Great. And Phoebe, what about from your perspective? Yeah. And also, I'm curious, do you like working with other big corporations? You know, like, is it, is it good? Do you, do you like to have sole access or is it great for you to be also working with other? I mean, Climate Pledge Fund is a, is a, is a group, right? So how, how important is that? So I'll add on to uh, what Luna has mentioned. I think uh, the points are very valid. I want to add uh, for Amazon Climate Platform, we actually have a very good portfolio success team. Um, so basically, these are very seasoned uh, Amazonians that have a lot of experience within uh, working with different business departments in Amazon. And knowing that Amazon is very big, it's actually really helpful uh, to know that which uh, department had to talk to, uh, which like a subject matter expert to pull in. So I would give kind of a plot to our portfolio success team over there. Um, and in addition to that, uh, if you're thinking about um, like companies like Genesis and many others in our portfolio and in the overall venture capital ecosystem, they're pretty early. So getting that pilot and POC uh, initiated or established is super important for them to get into the commercial agreement. So eventually these companies, especially technology heavy companies, would be able to overcome what we call Death Valley um, for the early stage. Um, so for Amazon and many companies that have worked before uh, in the corporate venture arm, uh, the portfolio success team or deployment team, however you call it, is super important to um, bridge the gap. Um, and to your second question, whether we want to work with others, uh, we are solving the climate um, change problem. And is it, it is a very, very important problem and very big. Um, it, it needs to have like everyone coming into uh, the picture. We work with our um, like the peers, uh, like Google, like Microsoft, etc. We also work with a lot of energy giants because it's a huge energy transition issues as well. And we also want to see kind of everyday Americans and everyday people to join in uh, the force as well as government, etc. So this is a problem big enough for everyone to uh, work together. Great. One final thought from each of you, uh, same question to both, which is what other advice would you give to a climate tech entrepreneur hoping to work with a large corporation? And also maybe just about keeping the faith, right? It's, it's easy to get burned out and discouraged. Um, any final advice or tips for the entrepreneurs listening to the podcast? Uh, Luna, let's start with you. 
I think for us, it's really just um, putting yourself out there and don't be afraid to, you know, get rejected, essentially. You know, we before we found some of the great partners that we work with today, we talked to more than 200, 300 companies, right, before we found that great fit. And, you know, once you get the ball rolling, once you sign your first deal, for example, uh, you really are able to then roll it out to the rest of the um, sort of the, 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 the herd. And um, I think for us, it's just to uh, continuously put yourself out there because there will be a lot of great companies where I actually looking for solutions like ours and they won't really know that you exist until you make a splash so um go out there try different things and uh, just do it yeah and my advice would be kind of starting early right because uh, most of investors they are not investing dots they invest in lines so when you have an idea when you have a MVP or when you have your pilot uh, already working with someone else, start talking to different investors and let them know what you're doing and send them periodic updates and so that they know uh, what are the milestones that you have achieved, uh, what are the progress that you have done. So that way, like when you're ready to raise your Series A, Series B, these are investors and people who are already in your fan club. So um, yeah, start early, talk to people uh, and make sure that you do your homework and knowing that uh, what are different corporations and what are uh, their investment thesis. Well, thanks to both of you for joining the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Heather. You for having us. You just heard from Luna Yu, CEO of Genesis, and Phoebe Wan, an investment partner and head of the Female Founder Initiative at Amazon. Well, that's a wrap for the week. Thanks to Jesse Klein for co-hosting this episode. I'll be back next week with Joel McCower for another edition of Greenbiz 350. Meanwhile, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters at www.greenbiz.com forward slash newsletters hyphen subscribe. Got that? We have seven of them, and I am especially fond of Climate Tech Rundown, which offers you two editions each week of our groundbreaking climate tech coverage. Signing off for now, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by Amazon Web Services, where success and scale bring broad responsibility and big companies have a bigger obligation to protect the planet. Learn more at aws.bpc.digital forward slash sustainability. 